there is so much out there to get mad about. Social injustices, class warfare, continued colonization, the act of destruction of our planet by those focused on profits and not people. We can find it overwhelming at times. The good news is there are equally as many, if not more, stories of people coming together and rising up against the forces at play. So the creators of Blueprints of Disruption have added a new weekly segment, Ravel Rants, where we will unpack the stories that have us most riled up, share calls to action, and most importantly, celebrate resistance. I'm not sure people know just how much we rely on migrant workers to feed our cities and just how poorly they're treated here in Canada. A story hit the news this week that again reminded us why migrant workers need full immigration status. Six Jamaican migrant workers that are working in Norfolk County, that's an area of a lot of tobacco, they staged a one-day protest against their living conditions, their working conditions. I mean, they live in what looks like a barracks, a bunkie, which is very common for migrant workers. They need to rely on pretty much whatever accommodations that their employer has for them. And they're usually in really crowded living conditions with very little privacy. But I mean, this was something else. This is flooded and they just described a horrible boss on top of all of that. And they staged a one day work stoppage, tools down, following that Six of those workers were sent home to Jamaica two months earlier than anticipated. They were fired. Now, authorities are saying they're going to investigate, but the reality is these employers that operate under the Temporary Foreign Workers Program or more specifically the Seasonal Agricultural Worker Program, the SAWP, have a lot of leeway. A lot of exceptions. Pretty much these folks, the working relationship that they have does not fall under, you know, the Employment Act or most of the labor laws that we have here in Canada. That is the whole purpose of that program. And so they're able to tell authorities, the farm in question here, the piece of shit worker that you see on the video going viral, he tells authorities, well, they were having problems with the crop. So they sent six workers home. But one of the remaining workers on site has let us know that Six new migrant workers have since shown up at the farm. These workers are from Mexico. So clearly it's a tactic being used by the employer to punish any time to punish any type of resistance that's happening amongst the workers, any kind of pushback, right? Another one of the excuses this worker's using to defend what he's done is that well not all the Jamaican workers were sent back. It so it some sort of indication that it wasn't inspired by the protest, that it wasn't a response to their their protest, but just uh, day-to-day business. So did you watch that video? Yeah, yeah. No, it, the video was disgusting to watch, quite frankly. I mean, the way that this whole thing is structured, where, you know, they have control over their place of living and, and as well as the fact that they're ability to stay in the country is tied to whether or not they're employed by this specific employer gives that employer entirely 
too much power. Employer slash landlord, because that's what they are. Entirely too much power. And you can see here the kind of power trip that this fucking asshole was on. Um, I found it telling that um, the part where he got most angry was when one of the workers brought up about the standards of the living conditions. There was a toilet that was overflowing, flooding the floor. And the response by the employer was essentially like, oh, you think like I'm not fucking angry about that? This is my fucking property. Like, you know, like you guys are not taking care of my fucking property. Like, no, actually, hold on. This is where they live. That's a lot more important than your fucking property. When I look at this story, you know, I, I can't help but wonder whether or not we would know about it at all if it wasn't for the fact that the uh, Jamaica's labor minister met with some of the farmers in Jamaica now that they're back in Jamaica and is currently investigating the circumstances around this. Can't help but wonder if we would have ever heard about this, if not for that, because clearly there was no process to prevent these workers from being sent away unfairly. And we're only worried now that, oh, we might have actual international uh, repercussions and it might affect Canada's ability to get more temporary foreign workers from Jamaica in the future if this becomes a larger issue. Really shows you the power dynamics at play here. Absolutely. And to your point where we probably wouldn't have heard about it, it's not like these conditions are new either. It's not this is not to minimize that the experience of those Jamaican workers in Norfolk County. It's to say that this has happened many, many times over. If you look at any of the work for some of the groups around the resistance to this, you know, the Migrant Rights Network or Justice for Migrant Workers, the amount of horror stories. So under the Temporary Foreign Workers Program, because these workers are not protected by the same labor laws as you and I, and because they are in such a power imbalance. So you have to imagine they come over here for eight months, typically sending money back to their family. So you must need a job real bad to travel away from your family for eight months in a land you do not know to work in conditions that apparently, you know, no one in Canada wants to, to do. They're so awful. You know, they're so underpaid and the, the hours that they have to work, the labor that's involved, then the living conditions that are available for them. Because you have to imagine they're in the middle of a rural area. So the support services that exist that they would in urban settings do not. Right. That's why these migrant rights networks and all of the networks to support these workers are so important because they're isolated as well by other and, and surrounded by other farms that are repeating this pattern over and over again, it's completely normalized in these communities. And working in these precarious conditions allows them to be exploited, sometimes very legally, or under minimum wage. They pay taxes but have no access to health care. So I've heard stories of, especially during COVID, where workers would get sick and because they couldn't be sent home, were just put in isolation until they died. Uh, and only in isolation, so they didn't impact the operations of the farm, not for any kind of compassion, and they received no adequate health care. Before COVID, if you got sick, you were just sent home. 
the, the farmer is not going to pay for you to get health care. You cannot afford to get health care. You've now become a liability because they just see these migrant workers as like tools. And in fact, like a year ago, Jamaican workers from Norfolk County, migrant workers, they lost one of their comrades to an accident on a tobacco farm. And in response, they wrote this heart-wrenching letter to the labor minister describing what they call systemic slavery, where they are put in conditions where they're just absolutely trapped, they're treated like garbage, punished for not working fast enough, having to live amongst rats and poor plumbing, horrible, horrible conditions. And yet we still we still look at these as, as completely acceptable, right? The Temporary Foreign Worker Program has been around since 1966. Well, at least the seasonal part of it, the seasonal agricultural. We have been bringing in workers from Jamaica since 1966, and they expanded that to include other parts of the Caribbean and Mexico. And we completely rely on that. We don't acknowledge that. And we rarely fight for their improved working conditions. You know, when we're talking about labor fights, um, this is one that's often left off the agenda as well. And it's worth mentioning the coercive tactics to even bring these foreign, uh, foreign workers over in the first place, right? Because you mentioned sending money back home to their family. Well, that's part of the promise, right? When you live in a country where, you know, there's big difference in how much a dollar is worth and they'll tell you something like oh you'll be making 14 15 16 however many dollars an hour right that's how they'll sell it to you and then they'll tell you this is worth this much back home right to emphasize the difference in buying power what they don't tell them is how expensive the cost of living is here they actively mislead them and so what ends up happening very often is you'll have peop people here. Sometimes it'll be, you know, parents who have kids back home. You know, they'll take these jobs because they're under the impression, okay, I'll be able to send back money home to take care of them. But then because the cost of living is so expensive in Canada and they're being paid so little, well below any living wage in Canada... Well, what happens is that they don't end up actually having any money to send back home. So they're doing all this work just to be able to afford to live here in Canada. And they're living out in the middle of nowhere. And then they don't get to spend send any money home. And eventually they get sent home when they're no longer useful. So it's an absolute exploitation. I mean, this is... This is... I mean, the fact that we allow something like this in today's world shows you... I mean, it shows you, first of all, just what happens when you fucking, why we need workers' protections. Because this is what happens when you don't have workers' protection. You know, if there's this idea that companies will just do the right thing, no. And a lot of these are also like, you know, like smaller farms. Like, you know, they're not doing the right thing either. Hiring these temporary foreign workers because these are jobs that... Canadians don't want quote unquote right like that's that's what they say oh, well we can't find anyone in Canada to work these jobs we need to bring other people in let's talk about that now they've made 
what they call improvements to the temporary foreign worker program um, in terms of what companies are allowed to claim that they can't find the labor. But I'll tell you that Tim Hortons, you know, it came out years ago that Tim Hortons regularly was using the temporary foreign workers program to staff their stores. So it allows employers to say, hey, we can't find, you know, this type of skill, the level of employment, you know, so we can't find enough people to fill these spots. And that could be remoteness. But either way, either way, their solution isn't actually to move people from southern Canada up to remote areas to staff this. It's to rely on dire economic situations in other countries that are so desperate for good jobs that they will send people over to be exploited. Right. So the labor minister in Jamaica, yeah. Yes, he should be outraged at the treatment of his nationals, but at the same time, he's responsible for the labor conditions within his country that allow, that force folks to have to travel so far to gain any kind of adequate employment. But the fact that Tim Hortons can claim under the under the rules that used to exist, and in fact, Justin Trudeau has recently, I hate using this term, cut red tape around the program due to a migrant shortage, no doubt spurred on by COVID and and other factors, but, you know, making it easier for people to bring over easily exploitable workers. And no doubt that these conditions are comparable to systemic slavery, not just the individual relationships that we're hearing about, like these horror stories of bad bosses using this leverage over their employees, but also just the systemic issue, the systemic nature of it, how probably we know the United States also, we know the United States also heavily relies on migrant workers to keep their farms running. That, and they also rely on prison workers, right? I'm not sure. I, I, I confess, I don't actually, I should turn this off. I confess that I don't actually know whether or not the situation applies to Canada, but I know in the U.S. they treat their they treat inmates as just essentially slave labor. Absolutely. Do we do that here? Do you know? Like I, I don't I don't actually know. I don't know, but I've been trying to get some prison abolitionists on for the show, so maybe they can help answer our questions there. But it shows you though, like all of this really goes to show you just like what our societies are built on. Right. And of course, me being me, I have to mention the fact that, you know, we're not just exploiting foreign workers that we bring over to Canada. We're also exploiting foreign workers in their countries with the companies that we bring to their countries so that we can make money that comes back to Canada. But it doesn't actually go to Canadians. It goes to the richest amongst us. Right. So our society is built off of the exploitation of poor workers and the coercion of poor workers across the world that's what keeps this society running the way it does a lot of people defend farmers in this situation and say you know if they had to pay canadians and provide benefits and use workers that weren't part of the temporary foreign workers program that they couldn't you know pay for cheap that they couldn't operate 
But again, that's going back to what kind of business model have we created? And I mean more as a society, not the individual farmer, that our farms can't exist without slave labor. What has our government done in terms of securing our food by means of relying on migrant labor? And it's not the fact that these folks are traveling and coming from other places or taking Canadian jobs. This is how our economy has operated for generations. These aren't really jobs for Canadians. You know, we have structured, we apparently have told ourselves that we deserve better working conditions and that we are not willing to subject our people to farm life, like hard work on the farm. And actually, because I see them, I am from not... (laughs) I see this. I live in farm country and you see the migrant workers out there doing those long, long hours and living in these tiny, tiny buildings. And it's yet when I go to the farmer's market, I do not see them. You know, we we like to pretend like this is not happening. And. I think it would shock people. I don't think many people do know about the temporary foreign workers program and that we have laws in place that actually allow employers to completely exempt themselves from the Employment Act. All of those rights that we thought were like the bare minimum that we fought tooth and nail for. For some reason, Jamaicans don't deserve it. Mexican workers don't deserve that. Not on our soil. And that's horrific. So hopefully as more people know about it, and more people plug into the resistance movements around it. We've mentioned them again. We'll throw their links in the show notes. But it, the status for all movements is something to really pay attention to. Like that is demanding full immigration status for all migrant workers. And I know there's a lot of people that will be like, whoa, that's that's a big ask. But in reality, under the way that our Canadian laws are structured, that's the only way to be able to secure many things for them. Employment laws, health care the right not to be just sent home arbitrarily like these Jamaican migrant workers. So I, re- I remind people, too, that we're an incredibly small population, 35 million people, something like that, Canada, in the second largest country in the world. And I know, I know we have our winters and I know that, you know, we can't move everyone to Northwest Territories, but we have, all, you look at the United States, you know, the amount of like people who live in northern parts of the United States, we have we have more than enough room here. And, you know, we talk about housing like, OK, so we're bringing in temporary foreign workers because we don't have enough people in agriculture. And, then, you know, what are people going to say about giving says, oh, well, we don't have enough housing. How about we bring in people who are able to do construction? We give them full proper status. We pay them properly and we build some houses, you know, like. That's the thing. With more people comes more resources. And one thing that's also worth mentioning for just because, you know, there's so much ignorance around this is is that immigrants contribute much, much more to the economy per capita than people who were born in Canada. Immigrants are doing so much, yet they are so easy to blame. Like, oh, we don't have enough. Oh, it's those fucking immigrants. No, actually, you have more because of them. Like, there, there is no uh, well-intentioned argument against this. There's no good faith argument here. 
everything that any counter argument is made in the worst faith possible because the evidence is overwhelming. So, yeah, I don't want to hear it. <laughs> Let's talk about some of those Canadian families. The Irvings. So the Canadian government isn't going to bring any migrant workers over for public housing anytime soon. They don't have the money for that. But we heard this week that they do have half a billion, B, half a billion dollars extra to give to the Irving family specifically Irving Shipbuilding. Now, that was enough to get me mad, right? Like that headline alone, because I understand who the Irving family is. For those who maybe don't, we're talking about the second richest family in Canada. Huge stakeholders, landowners in oil and gas out east. I probably don't even understand the full breadth of their portfolio, kind of like how we learned about Galen Weston. I learned after that, side note, they're also into healthcare and, and a bunch of other things, the Westons. Uh, but the Irvings are not to be outshone. They also create warships. Yay! Really good contributors to the Canadian economy, right? Fuck migrant workers. We need to pay the Irvings another $463 million to modernize their factory that is making our new fleet of warships. Now, here's where folks are going to get even more angry, okay? Where this money is going is specifically into the facilities that are fulfilling the Canadian Surface Combatant Project, the CSC project. So as I'm looking at the numbers, it gets worse and worse and worse. This is... And I don't know how we didn't all know about this. I mean, maybe you did and, and everyone's just going, how did you not know about this? Just This is the largest single purchase in the Canadian government's history for 15 fucking warships. Warships. So I'm sitting trying to explain this to my mom before we recorded. Like, okay, here's what I'm going to get mad about this week. She wants to hear about it. And I tell her all the money and she goes, we need warships. And I had to check myself because my kids were sitting next to me. I'm like, no, we need fucking public housing. <laughs> it's like, just what you said there, Santiago. But no. So this project to buy 15 new state-of-the-art warships was originally told to cost $26 billion. It's now as high as $84.5 billion. This is all going to the Irving family. This is a contract given to a single company to make an entire fleet of ships and all these numbers that I'm talking about not even one bolt has been put in they have not started construction on these and the last one won't be delivered till 2050 so not only will it cost 84 so this company is already getting 84.5 billion dollars in a contract to build warships which they admit will they will profit off of and somehow they convince the federal government during the summer when nobody's looking to give them another 463 million dollars. These warships now this money won't go to the Irving family but in the life cycle of these warships they will cost us another 300 billion dollars. Warships Something no Canadian, no person in the world will benefit from, save maybe if they're involved in some evacuation somewhere, or maybe they're searching for some billionaires who've gone lost looking for the Titanic. I don't know. But 
$300 billion to maintain these warships. And I don't imagine that includes the staffing of these warships and the training. And there's got to be costs that clearly aren't part of this line item here. How does something like this, I mean, we could start a whole discussion on the Canadian media on top of this, but like how this it hasn't been front page news every single time those costs have ballooned or how it's not a side note every time the liberal government comes out and says, you know, we don't have it in the budget yet to give emergency payments to disabled people that we know are starving. We still have to, you know, have rounds of consultations around that. But the Irvings come and say, hey, we need new shiny new digs so that we can pump up warships a little bit faster. No problem. That money appears. No problem. Almost, it's probably not a consultation. We're probably talking about a few phone calls, a few roundtables, and that money appeared out of nowhere. We always have money for war. And so few Canadians question that. You know, we have people shitting on immigrants for coming over here and taking our housing and requiring social services and, you know, like pitting unhoused people from Canada against unhoused people from other countries. And meanwhile, the Irvings are raking in cajillions and... They're not even a footnote in some of these articles. Yeah, no. I mean, I'm still stuck on the dollar figure there because I can't help but think of what could we do with that money? You know, what what kind of programs could we run with that money? You know, we're in a housing crisis. We can build all the houses we need with $300 billion. We could have completely universal health care with $300 billion. We could end food insecurity with $300 billion. 15 ships. That's just 15 ships. So I'm not talking about the aircraft. I'm not talking about helicopters. I'm not talking about guns, bombs, all of the other things that we spend when we go to war or our peacekeeping missions, whatever they want to call them. This is just on boats we don't have yet to replace the boats we do have because they want better boats, faster boats that have, I mean, even the name of it alone, Canadian surface combatant. We're not even pretending that they're protecting anything. They're combatants. That's a form of aggression. That's a really kind of positive enforcement there. And again, we're subsidizing fucking billionaires. Like the Irvings are worth billions already, right? They were awarded one of the largest contracts too off of the coast of Newfoundland and Labrador to extract natural gas. And it's never ending the profiteering and destructiveness that is tied into that family, like the resource extraction and the weaponry. These people shouldn't exist. And I know I don't mean violence on them, how we've created a society where you've got essentially Mr. Burns sitting there just profiteering off of our destruction. And they are called into galas and they are honored in a million different ways. And we put them on the cover of Time magazine and our liberal government can find money to make their factories modernized. Why are those costs not incurred on the billionaires themselves or their companies? Like, how is it even possible they consider this? And I'll tell you why. It's because they've already invested and committed to $84 billion. So if that factory is enough to snuff, if that factory can't fulfill that contract, they're going to be even more screwed. So now whatever happens to that, they need to just, they're beholden to the Irving family. 
and Irving shipholders until that contract is fulfilled. And we're talking about 2050. So apparently taxpayers are just going to continue and continue to just pay out the nose. And <laughs> none of it is going to the right places. You know, I had an argument with uh, somebody from the taxpayers, Canadian Taxpayers Federation. And I, I even roll my eyes talking about them because I hate framing people that way as taxpayers. You know, it's like that's your only uh, value. But, you know, he said to me something that I couldn't argue with. And I think I've mentioned it here before on the show. It's just when we're talking about taxing the rich and so that we can get the things that we want. He goes, but you don't. The government has billions and they don't spend it on what you need. So why is taking more billions in taxes going to be any different? That money essentially will just go back to the billionaires. And I couldn't argue with that. I honestly couldn't even argue with that if you had an NDP government, because we know that they see most of those companies as job creators and investors in the Canadian economy. And they would, too prop them up in ways like it's a neoliberal ideology that does that but it was hard to kind of continue that argument that if we could just have a, a, a if we could just have a rich tax you know and and create enough revenue the the issue isn't revenue it's the choices of where we spend that money you know it's not on paying workers adequately it's not on subsidizing our food so that we don't have to rely on slave labor it's on bailing out the weapons industry yeah and and it's it's money that also when it gets funneled into like people like the irvings you know that's taken out of the economy it slows everything down there's a big difference between giving money to rich people and versus when when you give money to social programs what happens with that money is it goes right back into circulating the economy and it makes everything run better i mean this is like like for fuck's sake, any like any economist who knows even the most basic level of economics will tell you the exact same thing. That's how we know that this is intentional and malicious. You know, that's how we know that they're not looking out for the people because they have the solutions in front of them. If they ask the professionals, they're going to tell them, oh, yeah, these are the solutions in front of you and this is why you should do it. It's kind of a no brainer. And you know what? It's what they do in plenty of other countries in the world where they have much more uh, in-depth social programs than what we have. And even that, I mean, I, I have my criticisms there. That's not nearly enough. And obviously what we're advocating for is well beyond social programs. We're advocating for complete systemic change. But for fuck's sake, they don't even do the social programs, you know, like it's it's a level of frustration. And I know like, you know, we're talking about warships here, but I just I can't help but think it's of all like, of it, though. It's everything. It, it, it comes back to everything because, you know, we start talking about the temporary foreign workers. It's like, OK, you know, I, I calculated it for a second. You know, I was like, uh, there's one hundred and thirty five thousand temporary foreign workers. How much would it cost to subsidize a salary of sixty thousand dollars a year? I just pick $60,000 random number and it's like, oh, that would cost just less than $8 billion. Holy shit. <laughs> <laughs> you know? No like, way. So like, you're not joking when we say like that number could solve all the world's problems. When you're talking about all of a sudden you're going to pay $100,000 or you're going to pay all of these workers. 100,000 workers, uh, $60,000. I mean, that's, a, that's not a great wage but it's well above the canadian average right and in some areas that might be a livable wage but 
surely as a subsidy to start it's more than a start but it, it and then other people you could have all, you know take that same number and say how many public housing units can we build how many hospitals can we fund how many nurses can we train and then pay adequately it's always about choices and the reality is our governance is 100% ordained by capital and backroom deals because like Santiago said it doesn't even make good economic sense to hand the Irvings that kind of money as opposed to divvying that 463 million dollars out to every person in Canada that money would actually go right back into the economy and the Irvings could pay for their own repairs and their stupid war machine deal would still be on and we'd all be the better for it and they know this yeah it's it's also worth mentioning the fact that the Irvings I mean they're quite connected when it comes to Canadian politics especially out east and I didn't fully understand how connected they were until during the last Halifax uh not sorry not uh, during the last New Brunswick provincial election I uh was speaking with some people who were uh running campaigns down there seems like you couldn't go five minutes without the Irving family coming up in one way or the other. What I learned was that they really control all of the politics down there, all of the funding. And it reminds me quite a bit of like what the kind of thing you hear in, in places like Mexico when they're talking about Carlos Slim and stuff, where it's just like everything's connected to like these incredibly rich and powerful individuals it was everything comes back to Irving. So, you know, you wonder how the hell did Irving get uh, tens to hundreds of billions of dollars here? Well, maybe it's not that much of a mystery, is it? No, because because even though we have individual donor limits, we're talking about a family and a family that employs many, many, many executives who can make many donations. And then we have the ability of third party advertisers to exist and for them to be infinitely funded so absolutely i don't know if you edited this out but our governance is always just capitalists making backroom political deals not economic deals not even always good canadian pr it's strictly to benefit the individuals in the call right the heads the ceos and the politicians that they're meeting with and this political class with the capital class just collude with one another to our demise. Mostly unchallenged, to be honest. This brings me to our last rant. It's no wonder that we make no headway within the political class in terms of making even good economic policy decisions, let alone social policy. We find out this week... MPs have to make full disclosures on their property holdings and any liabilities that might they might have or their spouses might have. And this week we find out that the leader of Canada's NDP, Jugmeet Singh, is a landlord. Now, I don't want to hear about it being in his spouse's name. Don't give me that shit. That is that is his property. I, I saw a tweet and I can't even remember who sent it, so I apologize if I'm I'm stealing this content here, but it, it made this argument that I'm going to make here. In this housing crisis, where homelessness is incredible, the levels of homelessness is incredible, 
and the responses to it minimal. In this time where we know renters are spending sometimes their entire paychecks on rent and folks are being evicted so that landlords can make even more money and all of these policies are being normalized. At the same time, the leader of the so-called working class party, the same man who is up there talking about greedflation and the greed of CEOs and the greed of RBC, this man decides in this moment in time, he's going to become a landlord. He's going to get in on this game. And frankly, that should fucking horrify every NDP member who hasn't already abandoned ship. Your leader is making money off someone else's shelter. He thinks that's okay. There is no hope for that party to decommodify housing when your leaders are landlords. So when you're scratching your head as to why he won't attack capitalism, it's because he's making bank off it. And it really gets me upset, not just because we hate fucking landlords, but because he has pulled the wool over people's eyes or people are completely complacent knowing this, that they have just hired an actor. They have hired an actor who they think would best convince Canadians to vote for their political party. Everything else be damned. He talks well, he dresses well, and, you know, he came up really strong in a campaign. So they're okay having a landlord wearing a Rolex representing the poorest people in Canada. And, and, have convinced themselves that he will actually advocate for renters or unhoused people. Our idea of representation is so fucked and it has really messed with our system. Our democracy would operate a little bit better, even with all its structural issues, if we actually elected people who were like us, right? If there was a fucking cap on the maximum income a politician could have beforehand, or I like... These criterias are, are silly, I know, but the idea that we hire the wealthiest amongst us, the most educationally accomplished, financially accomplished, however, we're, whatever words we want to throw behind it, but we, we think that they're better than. And so somehow we should send them off to Ottawa to fight for what we need. But they have no idea what we need. Correct me if I'm wrong. In the United States, don't they have a law that prevents politicians from uh, publicly trading in the stock market? Like, they're, they're not allowed, I, I, I believe. I don't know, but a lot of them got in trouble for investing heavily in big pharma ahead of the vaccination rollout. Or, or I think they have to, I, I think they have to, like, hold on to what they have or something. Like, they're not allowed to sell. Or, they're, they're, there's some sort of law around that. The reason I bring that up is because, you know, I've heard a lot of conservatives talk about how politicians shouldn't be able to to profit off of the stock market while, while they're in office. You know, this is something that, like, it's pretty universally people will say, yeah, no, that seems pretty like a pretty bad idea. You know, people always like to call real estate an investment, right? Like buying multiple parts. That's an investment. Why are we allowing them to make investments? You know, shouldn't it be that like a sacrifice 
to be in office is that you're not allowed to because then how could you have any sort of objectivity right i mean this is this is basics of democracy right here like this is something that like everybody regardless of where they are politically should be pretty fucking pissed off at right particularly the people on the left because i think the d commodification of essential goods is critical to leftist ideology right like there's no way folks need to be paying. Like if we control the means of production and redistribution, we should not charge for shelter, <laughs> right? Like we're making the best society possible. We can, we have that control. We would do that. But there is some validity in creating a balance where public office isn't a hardship. <laughs> and I'm not going to make the argument that not being allowed to be a landlord or invest in the stock market is any kind of hardship, but they do need to be adequately compensated. So I definitely, I'd never want to like play into the tropes of the conservatives who try to devalue that work. Uh, I guess we're guilty of it too. We keep saying Pierre Polivare has never had a real job, <laughs> yet we say Jag Jagmeet has a real job. I mean, it, it, we political office is a job. It shouldn't be a career because it does remove you from or should remove you from the ability to gain other incomes for that time being. And in fact, if you're a leftist, it becomes a bit of a liability. Well, a real leftist. It becomes a bit of a li liability to hold office, to be honest, uh, for the most part. So they have to, you know, not if, so that it doesn't feel like a service service that nobody wants to do it or only the worst people want to do it for they have to be properly motivated as well. But it's it's unfathomable that that progressives are okay. Because Jigmeet is only the newest member on the list of NDP landlords. So we are singling him out because he's the leader of the federal party and this is new news to us so that he didn't just inherit this property and lets it out because, you know, they've got it and they need extra income. They went out and took a mortgage with RBC nonetheless, the same bank that Jagmeet has been tweeting out about their greed all week. All of his mortgages are with RBC and they incurred another one just so that they could profit off of somebody's shelter. And... Even if they're breaking even, the idea that they would take this step means they don't have the same ideology as the rest of us, to be honest. And I'm, when I say the rest of us, I'm talking about socialists and leftists and people that are learn people that are trying to actually eat away at the system. He is actively feeding into it. And it's no wonder that we really didn't get many calls for a rent freeze during the height of the pandemic lockdowns. So when a lot of people weren't allowed to go to work and weren't really, most people were not getting paid to stay home. The real solution would have been a rent freeze, not a landlord subsidy, right? And... Of course, that's off the table, even for most progressives, because within their caucus are landlords. It's 38% of NPs, apparently. <laughs> that's really, really bad. That's a horrible, horrible number. Yeah, no. 
and we expect to get anything done. And they're also taking money from the developers, of course, as we talk about constantly on this show and nowhere else, because outside of election season, nobody seems to mention the developer money. So they get them on both sides of it. Absolutely. And we can't forget that MPs and MPPs are given housing subsidies. So there is no MP or MPP that should require a second property to make ends meet. Not only are they paid adequately, but they're also giving that housing they're also given a housing allowance. So amidst these conditions still Jugme thought it would be a good idea, good optics even to become a landlord during this crisis. You know who else is a landlord by the way? Andrea Horwath. She she she's a a landlord. Uh another fun one is Chris Glover who is uh was my MPP and I find that funny because he comes across as like this really like hippie dad biker guy and then you know Kathleen Wynn. So okay, no surprise there. I mean, but of course leaders seem to be particularly keen on this. And there's four NDP uh, current NDP MPs who are landlords. Apparently, we got Alexandro Bolus. I don't know how. Oh God, I'm bad with names. Alexandre Bolaris uh, from Quebec. Alistair McGregor out in BC. Laurel Collins in Victoria, BC, and Laurie Idlot in Nunavut. And that must be an older list because, you know, the recent disclosures probably haven't been accumulated into something that we can kind of digest, but because Jagmeet yeah, is now yeah. on that list. And now we add Jagmeet to the list. In terms of just like, oh, here's a fun one. Um, if I'm not mistaken, yeah, Elizabeth May is also, Elizabeth May and Mike Morris are both uh, landlords. So the Korean Party is also landlords, in case you're wondering. <laughs> I'm pretty sure, uh, yeah, I mean, we know Pierre Polyev is definitely, right? I mean, I can confirm that, but what about oh, Trudeau? Andrew Shear's a landlord. Hold on. Let's see. You know, I'm going to start searching. Because someone posted something about how many leaders. It was like four out of the five party leaders were landlords or something. So that, that might mean Trudeau. No, he's a landlord. Yeah. So I think just Block is not. At this point, <laughs> that kind of makes sense in a weird way, doesn't it? Yeah, Pierre Polyev, he's a landlord. They're all landlords, you know, it's 38 percent. But how come we're not surprised by the names? And yet when I kind of post about housing, people are talking. I mean, this is replicated on the municipal and, and, and provincial level. I'm, I'm sure. But folks are scratching their heads. So, you know, why aren't the feds solving the housing crisis? They have such a huge role to play here. And. You know, even if these are, we're talking about representing the interests of landlords and they might just hold one house, one unit within their house that they let out or, or whatever it is. It's their mentality that we're talking about. So maybe they're not the corporate landlords we're talking about when we do the blueprints of a rent strike. But it's still the idea that folks that are profiteering off of other people who can't afford to own a home are somehow best suited to solve the housing crisis. I, I mean, I got to be honest, for me, it's quite a principle thing, you know, like 
I, I do have a, a moral argument here of just, yeah, you cannot ethically be a landlord whatsoever. And if you're choosing to do this, like, like How about I don't period. care if it's a, yeah, period. Like, period. I, I, but especially as an MP. <laughs> yeah. No, that, that's why, like, if you're an MP and you have, I mean, you definitely have more than the average person's access to surviving in life, you know, and you're also a landlord, like, there's no excuse for that. There's no, there's no justification. I want to hear, like, oh, it's my wife's property. Oh, it's just a bedroom in our house. You know, it's too big. We don't, like, no, fuck off. Sell it. You know, like, I don't, I, I don't care. Even There's just for no... optics. Yeah. Like, you folks couldn't wait a few years until they finally get rid of Jagmita's leader to, like, have your. Yeah, that, that's the thing. So this is, that, that's a part of this that I think we, we really need to, like, like, the fact that this is new, that he wasn't a landlord and now he is, really shows how he's sitting quite comfy, you know? How not scared he is of our response. And it really tells you what they think about us. Because they know, oh, we're in a housing crisis. People. Are, so you like, mean not sitting comfy as in he's wealthy, but that politically he's so comfortable that he can do or say anything. And yeah. the convention in October is going to come and go with, a, I predict, a 84% approval rating for Jugmeat. Yeah, why not? I mean, they kept Andrea on in Ontario for as long as they did and. She's a landlord, and that didn't seem to work against her, at least within the party. So what the fuck are they worried about? Nothing, apparently. That's what I mean. Like, so, so yeah, keep keep spending time in the NDP because they definitely care about what you think. Not. <laughs> Sorry, I'm, I'm, a, I'm a little salty right uh, now. Well, but <laughs> No, you have every right to be because I joke when I say Chain Jugmead and I picture the free stickers that they try to hand out that has his the cartoon of Jugmead. And we've talked before uh, leadership cults on how the NDP has completely centered themselves on this personality of Jugmead and not values. Right. Like they don't feature other MPPs or MPs. They don't prop up movements and highlight them. It's very focused. And if you look at the budgeting around campaigns, it's very national campaign leader focused. The other parties do it, too. I get it. But we're talking about the NDP here. So when it's that figure, that person where you're like texting Team Jigmeet and like you are the, his cheerleaders and then you sit back and realize this this man owns two properties. He does not need you sending him a $10 donation. He is not doing anything in your best interest. And they're okay with parading a wealthy landowner as some sort of leader of the working class. And they made that conscious decision, and they continue to. And so... Yes, it does become about who that person is because their entire campaigns are centered around who he is, his life growing up. You know, it's all about and I know storytelling is important in campaigns, so I'm not I'm not coming down on that part of it. It's crucial in connecting with people, but it's everything, right? It is everything. And knowing it's not anyone to champion, I think I'm most frustrated knowing this probably won't change a thing with many NDPers. 
I mean, if you're still in the game after the BC NDP and all the other debacles, I'm not sure this is going to make much of an impact on them. And you've seen the latest polling, right? With the Conservatives, their lead is growing. They're looking like they have enough maybe for a majority government. Last I checked, they were polling at, what, 38%? You know, getting to that 40 mark. Yeah, and it's like, okay, Pierre Poulivert is also a landlord. But he's also enough of a... doesn't hold the same weight. It doesn't. But he still will get up there and say, we need to build high rises at every subway stop. (laughs) He comes out with kind of tangible solutions to housing when the NDP does not. Right. They will attack figure like greed and banks and other execs. And but rarely do they put forth actual solutions that people will hear and go, hey, that's a good idea. Quite often, even if it's public housing, it's still as vague as saying public housing. And that doesn't really have any tangible meaning to people. And it's purposeful. They are not committing to anything because they're so wishy-washy. They go with whatever the tide brings. And Pierre Poulivier, and he's okay with completely lying, bold face to everybody, that I'm going to help the people. But he's saying the right things. Jigmeet actually comes across as part of the capitalist class, to be honest, when you when you hear him speak. And knowing that he actually is, is it's it comes back to the like being scared to call a socialist, like being called a socialist, I guess, right? Like that that's kind of what it feels like a little bit again, right? Did he buy that property <laughs> so we can't call him a commie? <laughs> no, I mean just like the whole like narrative of it all, you know, like no one's gonna call Pierre Polyev a socialist, so he gets to parrot some of our talking points to make him sound more appealing. Oh, because, I understand. That's yeah. Yeah. But like, well, that is ironic, right? That's a disconnect. But that becomes, I think, part of the political miseducation that we've had that folks don't really understand what socialism is. Because I tweeted out something that was someone had tweeted like, this is socialism, you know, public health care is socialism, public education is socialism, rapid disaster response that's publicly funded is socialism. And it's not. That isn't socialism. Socialism is controlling the means of production and then distribution of resources, right? If you buy the people, by workers or collectives or, you know, it takes different forms. But no doubt those things would exist under a socialist regime because <laughs> if we all got together and decided, hmm, we've got a billion dollars here, what should we spend it on? And half of the people are like, well, I don't have a house yet. And we're like, okay, housing first, done. Well, oh, look, people are getting sick. We're going to fully fund some hospitals. Oh, we need to educate ourselves. We will fund public education systems that actually prepare you for life and not just a life in the factory. And you know, yes, these systems will exist and be well maintained, but they aren't in themselves socialist. And we know this because they exist under neoliberal regimes. They look completely different, but they aren't socialism. They also can be taken away at any moment under these neoliberal regimes, right? That's a part of why we talk about the systemic change, right? Because you'll get these victories and then you'll get a conservative government and then they'll take it away and then you got to work for it again. And, you know, like that. that's why... We talk about, and, and I, when I mentioned it earlier, that we need systemic change. We're not just advocating for social programs because if workers actually, if, if people were actually in control, 
of the means of production, if we actually had a society that wasn't based around capital and based around the control of the rich, then who the fuck is going to take away these programs? Are you, would you make that decision for yourself? Like if, if you're benefiting off of this to get rid of it? No, because people make the decisions that are good for them. And what's good for the people is good for all of us. You know, like that's, that's how it works. It comes back to like, I mean, we see how it works when you give workers more control in a business and they do better, you know, like bring back my statistic that I was like the quote about how worker cooperatives have over 80% five-year survival rate versus less than 40% for traditional businesses because people will make the decisions that are good for them. That's overwhelmingly true. And however many studies you look at, however many different systems, you means test something, no. You actually give people control, then it works better, right? That's how society can function too. So that's why we're advocating for complete change, not just little temporary social program solutions that will then get repealed and we're going to be left with even less. That is a wrap on another episode of Blueprints of Disruption. Thank you for joining us. Also, a very big thank you to the producer of our show, Santiago Halu Quintero. Blueprints of Disruption is an independent production operated cooperatively. You can follow us on Twitter at BP of Disruption. If you'd like to help us continue disrupting the status quo, please share our content. And if you have the means, consider becoming a patron. Not only does our support come from the progressive community, so does our content. So reach out to us and let us know what or who we should be amplifying. So until next time, keep disrupting.